Join me today as I speak with Indian-American author Anju Gatani. She's a fiction author, a freelance journalist. She is a writing instructor, a blogger, former newspaper reporter, born in India, but she grew up in Hong Kong and lived in Singapore, India, Australia, and now the U.S. Join me on an adventure, a literary romp through India. Meet me at the corner of patchouli and chai, where books, cinema, and conversation collide. I'm Lovelace Cook. I'll be your tour guide. Welcome to Bollywood and Books. Hi, Andrew. It's so good to see you. Hi, Lovelace, and I appreciate you um, having me on your show. It's such an honor to be here, such a privilege. We've chatted so many times, and every conversation is full of bubbles. Two enthusiastic humans, I think. I would say so. Considering the world is a very tough place right now. We need all the enthusiasm we can get. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with you, too, about your writing. You're a fiction author, freelance journalist. You're a fiction writing instructor blogger, former newspaper reporter, born in India, but you grew up in Hong Kong. You lived in Singapore, India, Australia, and now the U.S. You are truly a cosmopolitan, international writer. How has that influenced you? How has that transition growing up in all these different cultures, how has that influenced your writing? I'm going to jump right into it, if you don't mind. No, not a problem. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I call myself very colorfully confused. Just so many places, you know, been in so many different environments. And the transition for me in life has always been from A to B to C to D. But each transition has always been a different world, a different environment. So even growing up in Hong Kong, think of Bend It Like Beckham, but without the soccer. That was my life. We'd step out the door, our school, which was um, in colonial Hong Kong, before the handover to China, British school under the University of Cambridge, but over 36 nationalities under one roof. Wow. And we come home in a very Indian home environment. But of course, our parents talked in, with each other in Hindi. They spoke to us in English and they talked to us in Hindi as well. So it was a, it was a mixture of two languages all the time. Then we had neighbors who were Chinese. We had neighbors, great friends upstairs who were Korean. We had Japanese in our building. There was just so much diversity. That's just how I grew up. And so I never thought of it as diversity. That was normal for me. (laughs) I know it sounds funny, but that was my normal. It it sounds wonderful. It sounds like a great environment, a very creative environment. I love that. What inspired you to write in the first place? How did that evolve in your life? I was first published when I was about nine years old. It was with the South China Morning Post. They had a children's edition called the Young Post Club, which came out every Sunday. They were looking for creative writers, um, artists who could draw to send their work in so they could publish it and start the children's edition every Sunday. Well, why not try? And of course, funny enough, it wasn't writing. It was a drawing of a panda or something that I submitted and it got published. And I was like, this really can happen. This is real. But what I noticed um, in, in when I go back on hindsight is it's not the drawing that made me feel I was published. 
ticket, seeing my name and my age and my little membership number, which I had in bold. And just seeing that, I thought to myself, well, imagine how many households are getting this newspaper and how many people would see my name. And of course, that time we didn't have social media. We didn't have telephones where you could talk through in terms of visually. It was just the old fashioned phone. Our communication systems were very limited. Everybody was reading the newspaper. And that was just a very, very overwhelming thought. You know that, wow, people will flip to the page, see my name, and there I am, little nine-year-old. Then the next time I submitted a poem, that got published. That journey began when I was a little, a little child, really. And what an affirmation to see your name in print. Just to see your name in print and know that you're validated in public and before everybody, because I was very, very shy. I was an introvert growing up. I was very quiet. I would hide behind my mom's uh, sari palu, so to speak. I would peep out from behind whenever we had guests who would come in for dinner. And I was just really shy. So that was my way of, I think, telling the whole world, hey, here I am. What a lovely beginning. I just do like to imagine you, a shy little girl, hiding behind your mom's sorry. That's such a sweet image too. But you persisted. You continued. You didn't let that shyness get in the way of you becoming an artist, really diving into your own creativity as a writer. I really have been fascinated with your Winds of Fire series. want to talk with you about that. You are an advocate of just trying to promote awareness of domestic abuse and the advocacy for mental health. But in your Winds of Fire series, it's all draped in glamour. And so you built a world. I hope I'm not jumping around too much, but you created a world. And I've heard you in this wonderful presentation you did on building a world with words for Kathy L. Murphy's International Pulpwood Queens and Timber Guys workshop. And I'll put that a link to that in our show notes and on my website. Can we talk about world building and how you built? the world for the characters. Please tell me how you, through your writing process, developed the worlds in which your characters live. Well, first of all, thank you. Your kind words of the workshop that I presented and how much attention you paid to it. Really, it was just an effort on my end to help other writers out there understand the journey I've been through and what I've learned. And it's a way of paying it forward or giving back, so to speak, to so many authors who took me under their wing and helped me. But world building for me was something I had to figure out for myself. And I pulled out tons and tons of craft books on fiction, creation, writing, you know, from Donald Mass to David Corbett to um, Stephen James and, and all these. There were a lot of facets of world building and nuggets in there, which I learned. But the Winds of Fire series was a process of 20 years of development. It really was 20 years because the first book that came out was over 20 to 35 rewrites, 30 rewrites, I would say. And that was my my playing turf. That was my little playground, so to speak, on which I learned. But what I realized was the world building was not something I set out to do. It evolved as a result of the characters and what the story demanded. I would tell you point blank that every time, you know, I work out every day almost. And every time I get on the treadmill or the cross trainer, I start planning out in my head, this is what I'm going to, in, in the terms of the story format, you know, this is what's going to happen, then this after, then this, and so on and so forth. By the time I sat down to work on the manuscript, none of that happened. The characters just took on their own actions, reactions, 
I tried forcing them to do things I wanted, never worked. This, you know, the story would hit a dead end. So I learned to go with what the characters demanded and said. It was their story. And the world automatically built around it. But I had to learn how to create that world efficiently and effectively so that what is in my mind and the environment that I am creating or the environment that these characters are living in will translate to you, the reader, seamlessly, which is the enormous number of revisions and rewrites. Well, you certainly do convey that. And, you know, what I've read, oh my goodness, what a setting, what a phenomenal setting and in contrasts and the level of detail with which Mm -hmm. you write, it paints that picture of a certain lifestyle and in the culture as well. Yeah, thank you. And that's harder to do because I'm taking you to not just, hey, let's tour around India and take a look at, you know, the certain icons and landmarks. I'm taking you into a world which exists for sure, but it's hidden behind closed doors. And these are, you know, behavior patterns and thought patterns that you would never see or be exposed to, but exist. You know, that's where the culture comes in. And it's it's not just specific to one. You know, I grew up in Hong Kong, so I've seen in Asia as well, in Hong Kong with the Chinese, they have their own way of thinking and living and their system of conduct, modes of conduct, codes of conduct, behavior. I've had Japanese friends and I've seen similar things with them. What I've learned as a result of this is, is that culture has a huge, huge, huge impact on how characters behave. And culture can be specific to any and open to any. So America itself has its own culture, but it's how the characters navigate within that culture that sets the tone and demands of the story. Coming from and having been influenced by a patriarchal society in which arranged marriage is just I suppose for generations and generations was just an accepted part of the culture. That seems to be a theme that I see as as just a thread through so many of the novels. The Indian women, Indian American women who are writing have that theme. And it's difficult for a Westerner to grasp, but I understand. Would you talk about the culture of arranged marriages and how different it is to go from the Eastern culture to the Western culture, given that background. It's putting myself to a where I could easily get lost in translation with words on the page, because I'm taking you, the reader, to a concept which you've heard about, but you wouldn't know the details of unless you know someone who's been in that situation. And the way arranged marriages operate now in today's day is very different from how it operated 25, 30 years ago. Even 30 years ago in my grandmother's time, when my grandmother herself got married at the age of 13, my mother, the generation after, got married at the age of 16, but she went to finish on her bachelor's degree and then moved in with her in-laws. And now we're, it's the same arranged marriage system. And now we have my generation. A lot of arranged marriages, a lot of friends I know have also had arranged marriages, but the system began to widen a little bit. But the concept still remains, if you go back a few generations to the fact that two families, you know, one family has a girl of marriageable age, another family has a boy of a marriageable age, and they're looking to find suitable suitors. And it's not done, you know, unless you have a middleman, at least at that time, you've always had a middleman or a middle woman, so to speak, who would connect the two families together. That middle person would be the sort of wheel 
that facilitated the meeting of the two families. And when I say families, I mean families, families first. After the families meet, then of course, it's the next stage would be for the suitable boy and girl to meet and chaperone meeting where you get maybe a few minutes at that time to talk. That's in our generation. In my mom's generation, you didn't even get to see her. Or maybe you did, but you really didn't really get to talk. Now in my grandmother's generation, you had no clue who you were marrying. You just knew you were going to get married and that's that. Wow. So, you know, and when I go back in time to how much things have changed and now today's generation, the young, whatever you call them, Gen Zs or, you know, the next generation to come in India itself, they choose their own partners. A lot of them, of course, conflicts do come in when it's somebody who's out of a different caste or a different set of sector of India, but people are more open to that now than they were before. Women are getting a lot more opportunities for education and higher education. So they're also wearing the pants in the house, which is nice because that gives you something to stand on and advocate for yourself and not have to fall in that situation where you are being abused or being treated unfairly and you have to sustain it. When I was traveling in India, and I just distinctly remember a day in Kochi um, in Kerala where I saw, you know, there was obviously the grandmother was wearing a sari, the mother was wearing a tunic, and the daughter had on jeans and Western clothes. I thought, oh my goodness, look at these generations, the changes, cultural changes. And and there was a part of me that where it hurt my heart to see that tradition was being replaced by Western values. That was just a, an observation of my own. I really appreciate that you observe that. But Lovelace, this is what I observe from my end of the spectrum. So now when you paint that picture, what I observe when I paint, when I see your painted picture is the generations have had to fight to go from one extreme to the other. Each generation has had its own battle in terms of advocacy, in terms of standing up for women. You know, mothers who don't want their daughters to go through the same, pick up that fight and take that up and battle that for as long as they can until it's the time for the next generation to step in and take that battle up. So if it took us, you know, three or four generations to move from sorry and covering your head to being able to wear the jeans and the pants in the house and be able to tell the family, hey, I'm going after work now. Then obviously there have been generations in between that have fought for that. That's really exciting. You advocate for victims of domestic abuse and for mental health. And I hear that in what you're describing too, that this applauding women who are supporting women throughout mm-hmm. generations and developing that freedom to make a choice about their sure. own lives. Sure. I think you know, going back to, for example, how the series began, I didn't get to choose the characters. I didn't get to choose the story. They came to me. I didn't even know I was addressing these issues of domestic violence, domestic abuse, and mental health until I had two or three books written out. And then I had to really sit down and understand what on earth have I been writing, which sounds really stupid, but it's true because I really didn't know what I just knew I'd written a story to the best of my ability. As I began to, and this is, you know, what all writers do as we began to revise, rewrite, rewrite and clear up the fog and the white noise of the story begins to dissipate and the story starts coming to life in terms of it starts shining a little more because now we're removing the dirt. 
as I began to unearth more of it, I began to see the themes, which I hadn't even known I was writing about. So clearly there was a lot at the back of my head in terms of in my subconscious issues that have been just sitting there waiting to be addressed from what I had seen my mom go through in her life, other women in her generation go through in their lives. And of course, as a freelance journalist, when I interviewed people after the close of the interview, when we were done, the candidates and I would just sit back, take a deep breath and victims, or I would say candidates just started talking to me. I don't know why they would just start opening up to me about issues they were having in their lives. And I was surprised at the level of trust they had in me. Here I am a complete outsider interviewing them, maybe an aspect of education or um, something to do specifically with their kids. And the next thing I know is we're discussing their life. And it didn't matter whether it was in Singapore or India, the playing field was level everywhere. Does that make any sense? Yes, it it does. I do think that in one-on-one discussion and an interview, there is a level of intimacy and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And there has to be, I think, there has to be some level of trust that's gained through speaking with someone where you know, where you can trust the person who's interviewing you. And obviously the people with whom you spoke developed that trust in speaking with you. And I, I felt very privileged. I'll be honest. I really did to have that level of trust. But what started happening was I would just, I found myself burdened with all these stories of again, violence, abuse, and especially with women in Asia, it's a huge, huge problem because these stories are swept under the rug. The people, the women keep living their lives and they keep sweeping these stories under the rug. And I ask myself, you know, why? These are living human beings. They deserve an outlet or some way to be able to know that they could seek help. But the truth is, countries in Asia don't have that level of help as the Western society offers here. The only thing that I I believe I could do was to say, well, if this story addresses these issues and my character stands up for herself, then maybe her learnings could help somebody else in that situation. And so you brought some of the experiences that you heard and molded those through your characters. Well, they molded themselves I I was just a vehicle. That's how I see myself. I'm only the vehicle who's holding the pen and no more. When you are writing, sitting down writing, everybody wants to know about a writer's process. When you're writing and you say that your characters are taking over, are you in a flow state? It's a meditative state. Right. I would say that. And I don't write on laptop. I write pen to paper, literally pen on paper. It's bleeding from the heart. The stories bleed on the page. That's the best way I would say it. Wow. I have tried, you know, typing firsthand on the laptop, the very first draft, and nothing happens except I blink at the cursor, the cursor blinks back at me. And it really doesn't help. (laughs) You know, we're just playing a blinking game at that point. (laughs) So what I learned was old fashioned, old school, fine. I'll just have to do it the old fashioned way. And the pen has to be right. The flow of ink has to be exactly what I need it to be. And the paper has to be white, like a white canvas, so that there's no lines, nothing. That's when the characters take over. And I'm only, and I'll be very honest with you, I'm just a vehicle who puts the stories and pens them down on paper, and my characters bleed through me. That sounds like a gift to me, a gift that you're sharing. (laughs) I wish it was, but it's a lot of revisions after, and you know what that is, Lovelace. I do know what it's like, and it's frustrating. (laughs) I know you also, you do a great job, by the way on your interviews, 
with your YouTube channel, Story Mantra. Going to put a link in that. Oh my goodness, Anju. First of all, I was recently watching your interview with Alka Joshi. I just fell in love with that interview and your level of enthusiasm. That was a brilliant interview. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. I've always been one to advocate for other people's books. It's so funny because my books to me, honestly, are work, hard, grueling work. Other people's books, on the other hand, are leisure entertainment for me. And I'm one of those people who, if I've read a book and I love it, I will want to put that book in everyone else's hands. I am just an advocate for other people's books that I fall in love with. And Alka Joshi's books, I just love her work to death, like same as Khaled Hosini. And the recent book I read is Anna Johns's book, The Woman in the White Kimono. And I will tell everyone, you have to read that book. It's like Memoirs of a Geisha, but fast forward to 1957 a little bit, because now we're post-war Japan. And it's just a fantastic story. And I'm reading 50 Words for Rain by Asha Lemmy. And I've fallen in love with her work. What a gifted, gifted writer. Jean Kwok, you know, Girl in Translation. I've loved her book. So here I'm talking about other people's books, and I get more excited about their work than my own. And I want to make sure I get some of those titles in our show notes too, because I think reading is as much of a writer's part of a writer's life as the actual writing. Yes, it is. For me also, doing Story Mantra is my way of giving back to myself in a very selfish way. When I started the journey 20 years ago of developing the Winds of Fire series, and I didn't know any author. I didn't know anybody who wrote professionally in the U.S. because we just moved from Singapore to the U.S. And I didn't know how to get started on this journey. And uh, of course, the Internet wasn't as developed at that time. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have a lot of the social media links and development that we have now. And I would always go to the library, check out books and read the back to learn about the author. Where were they born? Where did they grow up? Where, what were experiences that they had which shaped them? I wished at that time when I started this journey and even before as a freelance journalist that I could have talked to an author and understood what does it mean to write a book? How do you write a book? How do these characters come on the page? So every time I do a video recording of Story Mantra, it's my way of giving back to myself and that passion and love for the writer's work, as well as helping other writers who may have the same questions, but may not have access or the ability to touch base or network with the authors that they love or look up to. I think that's wonderful that you support other writers in that way and also feed your own your own creative spirit. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple of times the 20 years of writing the Winds of Fire series. Are you comfortable talking a little bit about that journey? Absolutely. If, if you want to listen to it. Yes, ab- <laughs> yes absolutely. I know it's rare that someone comes right out of the chute with a bestseller. I think that it takes a long time mm-hmm. of practice practice, practice, practice to become a good writer, a writer that other people will want to read and a writer whose writing endures. So let's hear about your journey. So my journey began when all the doors shut down on me. We moved from Singapore to the US back in 2001. And my international journalism career came to an end because I was writing for magazines in Singapore, India, and Hong Kong who didn't quite have the internet presence at the time that they have now, because 
it was still a, a process of development. A lot of magazines would just have a landing page, but that's about it, nothing more. And what happened was that career came to an end. I was on a visa, which didn't allow me to work. So I was not allowed to go get a job. And I was um, a mom of two little boys while my husband obviously went to work. Also, we were in a new place in New Jersey. We had just moved from Singapore to New Jersey. And so the locale was new. The people were new. We were driving on the wrong side of the road. We were walking on the wrong side of the road. We had never seen anything on the scale of Kmart or Walmart in our life. And so seeing something that phenomenally big was like a shocker. Going into, going into the grocery stores and seeing one whole aisle just with cereals. And then seeing that the cereal came in four different packaging styles from mini carries, mini carries you can put in your handbag or, you know, school bag to family size. I mean, it was just like, whoa, there was a lot to soak in at the time. And as, as beautiful as the transition and coming here was, my career had ended. This whole journey began with a daydream, which funnily enough was before I had like, I was raising what a five-year-old and a, and a one-year-old at the time. You know, my husband would go to work in the morning, come back in the evening, and I would pick up the, the big guy who was five at the time from the school bus at about three or so. And just took an afternoon nap one day and the end of book two hit me in a daydream. And I woke up and I was like, what was that? Because I was sweaty. I was shivering and my heart was racing. And I was like, what was that? And I didn't know whether it was a movie I had seen or whether it was something I had dreamt or whether it was something I had seen long, long, long ago or heard about. You know, it was so real to me. So very real. My mom, of course, and my husband knew that I was writing professionally. And I, I talked to my mom a lot. And she said, well, maybe the only way you'll find out the answer is if you sit and write this down, start writing. And that's where the journey began. And my husband gave me a stack of A4 a letter paper, plain white, several pens. And he said, all right, go ahead. And my writing saved me because at that time, a woman in my position could have fallen into depression easily with nowhere to go, nothing to do. There was no escape. There was no going back. My writing saved me. My fiction, my own fiction saved and took me to a whole new world and has connected me now. Here we are 20 years later to somebody like you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate being able to talk with you. And, you know, I admire you, your courage and persistence. My husband calls it stubbornness. <laughs> you call it persistence. By any other name, by, you know, <laughs> let him call it stubbornness. If you're not stubborn sometimes or persistent, things just don't happen because defeat is so easy. Don't let it get in the way. Just pick yourself up. You were picked by Kathy L. Murphy, who is the queen of picking herself up with the Pulpwood Queens for your writing as one of the Pulpwood Queens picks in November. And what an honor. What an honor. To, and uh, talking with Kathy is like a whole other thing. I mean, she's incredible. She simply is. And, you know, to know that the book was picked up by someone like her and she understood the, the, Behind the story, the advocacy, the issues that I'm looking to address, which even, even I didn't know until much later. What a gift to get to have, you know, my work in her hands. She is a force to be reckoned with. She's an sure. amazing, amazing person. I'm very grateful to have known Kathy for mm -hmm. a lot of years. I was so excited for you to have that recognition. And I think it's really certainly well-deserved. You're a wonderful Thank writer. You. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Really do. And I'm I'm excited about reading the story that you're contributing to the anthology. uh, Anthology. (laughs) Are you willing to talk about that? Yes, and I'm excited about your story too. So I can't wait till that comes out. It's a deleted scene from book two, and it is the fabric, the very fabric of affection, true, deep-seated love between an Indian man and an Indian woman who are forbidden to each other. That's the scene. They're not allowed to, to talk about what they feel. They're not allowed to hold hands. It's a very, very modern Indian society, but modes of conduct and codes of conduct, which tell you exactly what you should, should not be doing, what you can, cannot be doing. That is a deleted scene, which I hope readers will enjoy and bring to life, you know, one of the elements of love, which is so delicate and so opaque. And at the same time, we have, you know, in so many love stories, characters who know what they want, they know who they love, but they cannot do anything about it because society forbids them. And I hope that comes through in writing as well. I look forward to reading that as well, Anju. You've mentioned a couple of your favorite books already. Mm-hmm. And I know you have said that you hope your books will bridge cultures and break barriers. Mm-hmm. Having lived in so many different countries and friends from all over the world, I would say that I realized, and again, this was not intentional. This is something I discovered sort of on the subconscious level of what I was doing, which took four books to figure out, by the way, because I was like, why am I writing these books? What's the thread that holds them together? Because I was beginning to see patterns, which I couldn't put in words. I didn't know, but I could see something distinct happening. And um, as I began evaluating my own work with a very critical eye, I began to see that through all my books so far, I was trying to bridge cultures, which is the differences we hold between each other across continents. So I know that we have the internet. I know we have social media. I know that we're all technically on the same level playing field and on the same page. But a lot of things get lost in translation because of how we're shaped in our value system, how our beliefs are influenced by all of that. I began to see in my work, I'm trying to bridge those differences, which are technically invisible because you can't put a thumb on it um, and say, well, this is what it is. And to the barriers is the mental barriers we carry in our minds without realizing it from secondhand information. We prejudge people before even knowing who they are, what their stories are, what they've been through in their lives. And we start labeling things on people. We we slap them with labels because he's from so-and-so, therefore he must be X, Y, Z. Because she is such and such, therefore she must have this sort of, you know, stigma attached to her. And that's very, very wrong because I don't think anybody should be prone to that kind of labeling without having been seen, heard, or understood. I agree completely. And I think that's absolutely, you know, it's vital in our world today to be able to be open to embracing other cultures, to understanding things that uh, you pointed out. When I made an observation about clothing, I had no idea. This was eight years ago, maybe. I had no idea about the background behind that. This is part of my education. I will say that travel in India, the times Mm -hmm. I've spent in India, completely opened my mind, changed my worldview, Mm -hmm. and helped me understand 
just how we all are one. That's how- true. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're all one. We all want the same things. Mm. We all want peace and happiness in our lives. There's no denying. We all have goals, desires, wishes, and wants, but we all go about it in different ways. Because what I've seen is, you know, society and culture and how you're shaped and your experience put certain restrictions on you, on how you can achieve that goal or achieve that dream. So we all learn to navigate. We we all have our own inner GPS system, so to speak, which tells us, take a left, nope, take a right. Okay, reroute. You can't do this, but somewhere, somebody else on the other side of the world could take that route, but you can't. So you learn to navigate based on the world around you. And I think at the end of the day, we're no different from somebody on the other side of the world, except the language we speak, the food we eat, our habits, our practices, our rituals, and most importantly, our belief and value system. You've just brought up so much. It's so important. And I think that's one of the the gifts that a writer like you brings to the party, brings to people to be able to understand that connection. I love the analogy of the GPS. Well, my GPS is always rerouting. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, whether it's my writing or whether it's my, my personal life or whether it's my professional life. It's always rerouting because the one thing I've learned is what's happening today will change by tomorrow. Nothing stays the same. Oh. Everything is in a state of flux. Everything. <laughs> we, we come to understand that and either accept it with grace, embrace it, or fight like crazy against it, which is insane. And if you fight against it, which becomes resistance, yes. you make your own life difficult, which is what that fabulous book by Eckhart Tolle talks about, The Power of Now. Yes. Um, he, he talks about acceptance versus resistance versus things like the pain body, which is you know when you unknowingly choose to live in discomfort and you continue down that path of self-hatred and not knowing your self-worth, because you've become so familiar and conditioned to living with pain that that's the path you choose. Like I said, there's just a whole gamut of books and authors who I admire, who have really shaped my value of thinking, my perceptions, and my misunderstandings also of other cultures. When I read their books, I understand this is what they're going through. This is what their lives are like. I look at The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. You know, we had just moved to America. The entire world was at that um juncture of war because of the Twin Towers, which was just horrendous. But at the same time, there comes this book about the kite runner and what war-torn ravaged Afghanistan was going through. And then we had A Thousand Splendid Sons with the story of Layla and Maryam, what these two women were going through under the Taliban regime. And nobody would have known about that firsthand unless you read it by the author who's written it firsthand. Because secondhand information can always be diluted or changed just a little. And that just changes the entire fabric of your belief. Wow. Is there anything that that you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you? Like I said, I, I love talking to other people, which is why I do Story Mantra. You know, I find my fulfillment and happiness in other people's stories, in other people's books. And I it's been so funny because sometimes I've been on other networks and other podcasts and interviews and I'm carrying other authors' books, and I forget to take my own. And I'm like, oops, where's my book? And I, I just forget, because I'm so excited about other people's work. And I think after you know, you've been working on a series for 20 years, and you're dealing with the same characters and the same family and everything, you really start getting a little tired of yourself. Uh, at least I have. <laughs> so 
And you start questioning what you're doing and why are you rewriting these like over 30 times and other people's work and other people's efforts and achievements gives me a sense of satisfaction, especially when someone like Alka Joshi, who's written a Jaipur trilogy, broke out with such success. And I'm from Jaipur myself. That's where my family lives. And for many, many years growing up in Hong Kong, a lot of my time was spent also living in hiding because I was afraid to tell people where I'm from. You've got people who were going back to England, who were going to Australia for the holidays, or who were going just setting on a, a, a cruise around here and there. And then you tell them you're going to Jaipur and they're like, what is Jaipur? And then you're like, never mind. So when I see a Jaipur trilogy finally coming out on the big screen and in books, I'm like, well, it's about time. You know, I, I have an author friend. Her name is Nandita Godbole, and she's a cookbook author. She self-publishes, but she comes out with these amazing, amazing cookbooks, which shows you Indian cooking from scratch, but step-by-step with visuals, which is something that no Indian cookbook author has really been able to do before because the level of patience required. And remember, Indian cooking, and I've been cooking since I was 10, by the way, Indian cooking is not straightforward. There are many layers to it. It's a question of timing and it's a question of balance. And Nandita and her books visually shows you and walks you step by step through those layers of cooking and how to bring those recipes to life. So when I saw her book come out and hit the shelves and I was so excited for her because I thought, finally, I can show this to my little self and say, You don't have to hide behind your food. You don't have to hide behind your culture. You don't have to hide behind who you are or where you're from or that you're from Jaipur or India, because finally there's recognition for everything you were and still are today. Just speaking of Jaipur, I've been really wanting to go to Jaipur for the Mm -hmm. the Jaipur Literary Festival in January. In January. And I, I got an email yesterday from the festival, you know, oh, talking nice. about the days that it's going to be held in person and the days online. And, you know, there's this part of me that's, oh, I want to go. I want to go. Well, I was just in Jaipur um, for the month of sort of September, I would say. And, um, you know, I, I got to spend a good three weeks with my mom, who's there, um, and a lot of my cousins who I haven't caught up with in a long time. Again, Jaipur is not what it used to be. It's changed so much in terms of the people, the culture, a lot of westernization has come in. And of course, you've always got the conflict of the new generation with the old. That's going to continue. But at the same time, you see that women are progressing. Just because a woman has transitioned from a sari to a pair of jeans doesn't change her value. It just means she's moved into a different comfort zone, a different attire, a different clothing. You know, there there are women um, in our generation who wear the jeans on one occasion, but who can drape on a sari in five minutes with the jewelry and all of that and be there ready for Diwali, for example. It's just a question of sort of knowing your priorities, what's right for what occasion, and being able to switch in and switch out at ease. I'm so grateful to have a chance to talk with you and appreciate you for all that you're doing. I believe in in you and what you're doing and your art your creativity. I believe in the message that you're delivering and your values. Oh gosh, that's so powerful. I don't know what to say. I'm speechless now, Lovelace. I'm sorry. This is your interview. (laughs) No, this is wonderful. That's what every writer craves to hear. That for me, at the end of the day, there's a lot of work that goes in. It's words on paper. 
that's what I know. And I, that's what I tell myself. I'm just a messenger, words on paper. It's very draining. You know that it's emotionally draining to write fiction. It's not easy. And you never know how it's going to affect the reader or somebody who just happened to pick up your book and flip a page. So to hear something of this caliber from you, it means so much to me because the next project that I'm working on, which is a whole new book, not tied to the series, it's a harder nut to crack. It's, it's been a project in development since 2006. And I've worked on it on and off, you know, heavy rewrites. And now it's at the point where it's almost finished. It's almost completed. I have the last 80 pages to read. And in the middle, I was like, is anyone even going to want to read the story? Because I've read it so many times now, my eyeballs are going to fall out. And I question myself, as do many writers. You know, we question what we're writing. And I'll read Asha Lemmy's book, 50 Words for Rain. And I'm like, this is the real thing. You know, this is what, this is what real fiction is. And, and I come back to my own work and I'm like, hmm. So to hear something like this from you is so validating for me. Um, oh. It gives me the courage to continue, plug on, finish those 80 pages and send it out where it needs to go. So thank you. I applaud you and look forward to reading the next book, the story that's going to be in, in the anthology. I'll put a link to that. Yeah, thank you. Also, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Lovelace, for having me. Like I said, it's an it's such a privilege to be able to chat with you and to connect with your audience, um, especially with the issues that I bring to the table, which are not sort of sugar-coated and sweet honey kind of issues. They're hardcore hitting happening even today. And that's why we need to talk about those things. And Anju, thank you so much for all of your time today. Where can people find you? Um, so people can find me bubbling away on various social media platforms. And I do that not because I love myself, but because I love to find other people and connect with them. So you'll find my website. It's anjugitani.com. And you'll find information about my background, the kind of work I've done. I also blog on my website. You also find me on Twitter and Instagram and also on Facebook for sure. The Facebook is Anjugatani Author. And of course, Story Monster, which is the favorite yes. of, of all. And I would really, really appreciate if you subscribe to the channel, show me your love and support because I'm doing this for all of you. It feeds my creative soul, you know, the, the happy person within me um, to talk about other people's books and to help other people where I wish I could have also been helped in that same way. So those are the media platforms, the social media. And of course, if you know, you'd love to listen or chat with me or um, have me involved in anything, um, please do reach out via my contact page on the website and also um, through the other social media platforms that I'm on. Thank you. I'm going to put links to everything we've discussed to your website, Twitter feed, uh, your Instagram, Facebook, and Story Mantra in particular, because I really want people to hear you speaking with other authors and see what an incredibly wonderful interviewer you are. Thank you, Anjou. Thanks to Glasgow resident Jonathan Chapman, classically trained musician, artist, website designer, and a really great guy who introduced me Edinburgh-based Red Note Ensemble and their album, Reels to Ragas, whose music you're listening to with renowned tabla player Kuljit Bamra. For more information, see the show notes at bollywoodandbooks.com where East truly meets West. 